0: Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. I ask you, what is the most glorious thing that you have ever seen? The most glorious thing that you've ever seen. I have a friend, one of my best friends, who describes everything that he loves as glorious. He uses that as an adjective. And I'd ask him, hey, how was your trip? Glorious. It's glorious. How's that brisket? Glorious. How did it feel brushing your teeth after a long hiking trip where you haven't brushed your teeth in a week? Glorious. You know, you get the fuzzies on your teeth if you haven't brushed in a while. None of you are admitting that, huh? Well, what do you remember as being glorious? I wonder if you can think about something that you would describe as glorious. Was it the first glimpse of thunderheads across the West as you're driving out and you've been able to see that? Or maybe it's like the largest mountain you've ever seen. Maybe it's uh, the first time you saw a canopy of stars where there's no ambient light, but you can see for the first time uh, the arms of the Milky Way and stars that you've never seen before. Maybe it's the... Sunset across the bay when you're visiting the shore Uh, Perhaps it's the site of a the largest Sunday that your parents have ever allowed you to eat and you looked at it And you thought this is absolutely glorious We know it when we see it Glory is something that we can point to it's something so majestic so beautiful uh, so absolutely large and so breathtaking in Isaiah saw what very few men in history have seen before, which is the throne room of God. And it was such an image of God in his glory that it absolutely silenced him. He was put before the holy and almighty God. It humbled him, and it even moved him to say, do whatever you want to do with me. We're going to start our study of Isaiah this morning uh, in Isaiah 6, because it is the starting point of The view of God to which the Holy One of Israel needs the church of Israel, the the, the Israel, the people of God whom he rescued, he needs them to see that he is the Holy One of God and there is no other. And my hope is that as we work through the book of Isaiah and as we start in Isaiah 6, that for us it will also have the same motivation Uh, Isaiah 6 is not the beginning of the book, but it is because it is the beginning of Isaiah's call to ministry. It is the revelation of the one to whom is calling him, the one who is sending him to be a voice of good news to the people who have abandoned him. It's, It's the vision of the one who is speaking through Isaiah. And so this morning, as we start our study, I want to do four things. One, let me give us a brief introduction to Isaiah the prophet. I'm going to give you an an overview of what Isaiah is about and what we're going to be looking at, a little bit of their context, and two, I want you to see the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel who is holy, transcendent, the one who is also gracious and just. Then we're going to see the case that is against his church, uh, that they have abandoned him, that his own people have abandoned the Holy One of Israel. And finally, to show you that there is good news, and there has always been good news, that the Holy One of Israel will not fail. So, in Isaiah chapter 6, as Brooke read for us, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I, personal pronoun, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was a uh, living in the times when there was a lot of uh, tumult in his area, uh, and a lot of people don't study the prophets mostly because it's 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 laborious. The size and scope alone of Isaiah is is large. It's huge. It's 66 books. Uh, It is mostly poetry. The prophets write in mostly poetry, which makes it difficult to understand. So for the average reader, if you just jump in and you have no no clue about how Hebrew poetry works, or you, you don't know what the imagery is, or you don't know the context of the history, it can be a difficult book to study. And the import of what Isaiah says, as a prophet, the one who was sent to speak to his people, God's people, he says difficult things, and it is difficult to understand. Many have said that Isaiah is the uh, George Washington of Mount Rushmore. Here's an image of Mount Rushmore. Uh, I was able to visit it recently with my son driving out to the west. And you notice who is the most prominent image on those four presidents. It is George Washington. He is most prominently put because he is one of the greatest presidents in our American history. He had such an indelible mark on our history that it was decided that George Washington would be prominently put on Mount Rushmore in the same way isaiah is the largest prophet of all of the major and minor prophets in scripture he is put first for a reason because he is viewed as the prophet who spoke truly to the people of israel he has multiple horizons he speaks to the jews of what would happen 10 years from his lifetime he speaks about what would happen a hundred years from his lifetime he speaks what would happen 900 years from his lifetime he speaks of cyrus He speaks of the exile. He speaks of the one who would be the Messiah, the Christ. And he speaks into eternity that God would restore all things to himself, that he would restore a new heavens and a new earth. So as you read through the book of Isaiah, you are not only looking at the horizon where you're driving and you see something that he predicted, but then you begin to see more things and more things. If you want to learn more about God, says one theologian, if you want to learn how to relate to him, if you're concerned by world events and circumstances that surround you, if you want to learn how to live in a pluralistic world, even when those are antagonistic against the Christian faith, if you want to know the story of God, then study the book of Isaiah. He is a prophet among prophets. Now, who is Isaiah? He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah, there's not much known about him. In chapter 8, verse 3, we see that he is married. He had two sons, and his ministry was among a time when the Assyrians were on the ascendancy. They lived to the north of Israel. Uh, Israel was divided now. There was a civil war after Solomon, son of David, died. The kingdom splits in two, and those who were loyal to David stayed in Judah, the southern kingdom. Those who were disloyal to the king of Judah became Israel. And so the Assyrians, as they rise, uh, are a threat to the nation of the whole of Israel, Israel, and Judah. Isaiah's ministry was over the course of 50 years. He had a 50-year ministry. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, let's go back there really quick. It says that Isaiah served among the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the end of his ministry. Uzziah is the beginning. And in chapter 6, Isaiah says, when King Uzziah died, that was when he received the call. In fact, Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 serve as an introduction to the whole book. It's a court case that is laid out. And then some reason, Isaiah decides that in chapter 6, he's going to say, here's what started the whole thing. I saw the Holy One of Israel, and this is what he sent me to speak of. He sent me to speak of the exile that would come. He told me to tell Uzziah, don't worry about the Assyrians. Trust God. And then he would tell Hezekiah, don't worry about the Babylonians. Trust God. You are the people of God. Yahweh is your king. Do not lean upon any other. They failed to listen to him. Here's an image. If you're unfamiliar with the area, here's the image of Of Israel at the time, you'll see that Babylon is to the east, Assyria to the north, and you have Damascus, Tyre, Samaria, Egypt to the south. These are all powers that Israel would look to. And then the kings of Judah would look to. They would look to Egypt, the one whom they were rescued out of. And God says, are you kidding me? I took you out of slavery from there. Why would you trust in Egypt to save you? But yet they failed to trust in Yahweh, their king. And so Isaiah's constant message is turn to God. Stop making alliances with those who cannot help you because they are going to be wiped out too. The Assyrian army is going to come, and the Assyrian army came. The Babylonians will come, and the Babylonians came. And eventually it sank in that those who now were exiled in Israel and Judah said Isaiah was right, and so they preserved his writings because a true prophet said what would happen Moses said, here's how you know a true prophet. He's going to tell you what's going to happen, and then it's going to happen. And so when it, 10 years later, when Isaiah said, I told you that Cyrus was going to come, he came. I'm sorry, when Cyrus sends you back, he sends you back. After the exile, Cyrus was named in the book of Isaiah, said he's coming to send you back. And sure enough, it happened. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of it happened. And so the Jews said, he is a true prophet. And what he speaks of his people is true. Isaiah is a mouth of God. This is why we're concerned with prophets. Many churches don't study the Old Testament simply because they say, well, what's the point? We have Jesus. He fulfilled all things, right? But yet, like Moses and Aaron, that's how a prophet works. A prophet speaks for God, and God is not done speaking. God speaks directly to his people through Isaiah, and God speaks to us because not everything has happened yet. The fulfillment of all time has not happened. There are still things that Isaiah said would happen that have not happened, and so he speaks to us. He also warns us of the problems of the past. A prophet speaks to his people. God speaks to his people through a prophet, and they are taken seriously because when that word is spoken and it comes true, it is God himself. These people that he's speaking to are not much different from ourselves today. They're not much different. They're struggling with the same fears, uh, the same concerns. And as Isaiah is speaking to them, and as he's speaking to us, we also are spoken to through Jesus, who Jesus speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us all the time. He's not done speaking because he wants us to keep our eyes fixed on the true king. And so Isaiah, a spokesman for God, a, a voice of God who Uh, has been preserved because he spoke that which is true and that which happened, we ought to take seriously and be warned about the same warnings to Israel, the church of God at the time that drifted from trusting Yahweh. Isaiah structures five main themes. We're only going to study one. We're going to study the messianic hope, the repetitive hope that there is a king who will come There is one who will be a good king, he will be a servant, and he will conquer the entire known universe. This one person who, through the book of Isaiah, it is clear that Isaiah uses multiple things to point to this messianic hope, this hope that they have. He will be a king, he will be a servant, he will be a conqueror. And Isaiah weaves these things, It's in he, he names them over and over again, and sometimes he uses... Uh, a word for one thing and a word for another. But as he weaves it, it is one message, which is this, that there is good news. There's multiple themes, but it all points to the fact that though you are in exile, though you have been judged, though you have failed church, you are going to be restored by one who will come as a king, as a servant, and as a conqueror. In fact, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves Yahweh has worked salvation. And so that is a bit of why we study the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah and God are not done speaking. So let's look at what Isaiah saw and what Isaiah spoke. God our king, point number two, the Holy One of Israel. What is he like? What's he like? In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a good king. He made changes to Israel that pointed them back to their God. At least he tried to do what he could, but then pride entered his heart. And later in his life, he decided that he would walk in and worship God as he pleased. And God said, that's not according to law. And so you must not do this. And so when he tried to do it anyway, and the priest came before him, he was struck with leprosy, and he died in a hospital, leprous. And his son, Jotham, took the throne And Jotham was not as good of a king as Uzziah. But when Uzziah died, that is when Isaiah is brought before the Lord. He sees him high and lofty. The Holy One of Israel. The one whom Isaiah names in chapter 1 as that Holy One he sees. Uzziah, though he died, God is saying, Isaiah, people, though a good king dies, I am the Holy One. The robe of my, the train of my robe fills the entire throne room. It throws a vision at Isaiah where he says that I have not left you. I have never left my throne. John uses this in Revelation 15.8. We see the th- same thing where there are seraphim, that word being flaming ones, pure, holy, flaming ones who serve the Lord God. They say, holy, holy, holy. It's a tripartite way of saying God is infinitely holy. Some commentators would say that the reason why it is saying holy, 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 and the, why, the reason why later on in this chapter he says who will, who will go for us, it is, a, it is a Trinitarian language of saying it is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, holy, set apart, transcendent, different than anything else. He is beyond the normal. That is what we need. We need a transcendent God. Man is not transcendent. We are average. We are not much different than anyone else in this globe. And when anybody comes and says, I am better than anyone else, I am the leader who will lead you to salvation. The church says, no, there is one who is transcendent, who is above all, who is holy, and who is set apart. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that we serve. Anytime we replace God, with anything else that is not transcendent, not holy, we fail to recognize the God, the Holy One of Israel, who serves as a king. The Lord is the Holy One of Israel. This title is used 25 times in Isaiah. It's only used seven times in the rest of the Old Testament. There's encouragement given to Isaiah and Israel that Uzziah, who started when he was 16 years old and became king, who is now dead, that Israel would have another king. They would have another king in the future, but that king is still their God. He is Yahweh. Chapters 1 through 5, as I said, serve as the introduction to the entirety of the book. God lays out a case against Judah and against Jerusalem and even against the surrounding nations And it is the opening statement, this Holy One of Israel says, let me lay out something for you. Now that I've revealed to you, Isaiah, who I am, seraphim, flaming ones, speaking, screaming, really, the holiness of God. I'm the one who is your king, Israel. And yet, what have you done? Let me encourage you to break out your pens. I'm going to give you a few passages. Circle them, and it will be your connected dots through chapters 1 through 5 so that later... As you read through it, you can go through and see how the argument is laid out. It's not going to take us very long. So let's turn to chapter 1, verse 1. This is the case against his people. This is the case against the people of God, who this Holy One of Israel is their king. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That is Isaiah's focus. It is Judah And it is Jerusalem. He's not concerned about Israel. He's concerned about Judah. That is where Isaiah lives. He's part of the rich upper class. He he is in uh, the court of the king often. He's able to speak directly to the king. And so he is a very wise, a very smart, a very wealthy man. You can tell by the language that he has a command of language that is beautiful. He uses poetry. He is not uh, a dumb man. He is a wise man. He's a smart man. Isaiah isn't the only prophet at the time. Uh, his contemporaries were the prophet of Amos, Hosea, and Micah. There were other prophets speaking for God, warning Judah. But what have they done? Look at verse 4. One, chapter 1, verse 4, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah's name for God. That is going to repeat all through Isaiah. This Holy Set-apart, this Holy One of Israel, they've abandoned them. They've turned their backs. At one point in the book says, God says, who does this? Who turns their back on their God? No one in the world does this. You don't see the Amorites doing it, the Hittites. No one does this. Only you, Israel. You abandon the true God. Remember when I rescued you out of Egypt and now you're you're going to worship Egypt and depend on them? Who does this? My people have done this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, 13 through 15. They're empty religion. God is saying, I'm rejecting this religion. What are all of your sacrifices to me? What is this repetition of sacrifices? I've had enough. Stop bringing the sacrifices. Stop praying. I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I'm not going to listen because there is iniquity in your heart. You come as a hypocrite. You monday through saturday do whatever you want to do worship whatever you want to worship consume whatever you want to consume then this one day you think that i'm going to not see that stop i'm done Could asking me to rescue you over and over again yet you fail to turn to me it is empty religion my people stop it is the equivalent to what we might experience as civil religion today we say I'm a Christian because I'm, I'm part of the West. I'm a Christian because I'm British. I'm a Christian because I'm American. I'm, there used to be a time when simply just being an American or a British, where, where Christianity had the majority. It's like, well, I'm a Christian because I live in the United States of America. That is civil religion. God does not look at civil religion. You are not born Christian. Israel faced the same thing. They thought that they were, they were born Israelites. They were born Jews, and so therefore God said, If I'm born of a particular denomination, if I'm born into a church that my parents go to, I must be saved. It is absolutely false. You are no different in what Israel believed, that they were safe because they were born to a certain people. And this is what the good news of the gospel is, is that you need not be born to a certain people or ethnicity to be loved by God or saved by God. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity or where you're born or what church you're part of or what town you live in. It has nothing to do with that. What is the solution? Chapter 1, verse 17. Look, learn to do what is good. The heart of God, love justice, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The rich and the wealthy of Jerusalem had forgotten the ethical commands of God. God has not forgotten his his ethical commands. But what about Jesus? Did he not fulfill the law for us? Can we live the way that we want to live and forget the ethics of the law? Absolutely not. All the more we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You cannot love Jesus or the Holy One of Israel and forget the the fatherless, the poor, the widow. There is a way in which we lived that reflects the ethics, the morality of God, the wisdom, the holiness, and the love and the kindness of God. Israel had forgotten. They had gotten into this rhythm of religion, and they had forgotten that their people were not being cared for. There is a lack of leadership. There's a lack of leadership, godly leadership. Their their sins are scarlet. Chapter 1, verse 18, your sins are scarlet. And then here's the glimpse, but what? They will be white as snow. How did this happen? Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Things crept in. What crept into Israel? What could possibly take their eyes off of the Holy One of Israel? Look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Again, this is a court case Isaiah is saying, you are full of divination from the east. There's eastern mysticism right there. There are gods and practices that have crept in to your worship. Of fortune tellers like the Philistines. You are in league with foreigners. You are dependent upon foreign powers. Your land is full of silver and gold. You are wealthy beyond compare. You have a military that is large. There's no limit to your chariots and horses. And you are full of worthless idols. Idolatry. Military might, wealth, Eastern mysticism, fortune-telling, spirituality, it all crept in. It sounds much different than our day, doesn't it? A dependence upon military might, a dependence upon wealth. If our economy is great, we're going to be just fine. If our military is great, we're going to be just fine. If I can just get a little bit of wisdom from all these other ways and Jesus plus these things, I'm going to live the life that I was called to be. I'm going to live my best life now. In the same way, Israel let that happen, and it was a slow drift from the mission that they were called to be in this world, which was this, to be the people of God who had the Holy One of Israel as their Savior, the one who cared for them, loved them, and protected them. Though armies would surround them, God said, don't worry about it, I got this, and if you would lay down your arms, Israel, you would see that the army was dispersed because God shows up. Look what he does in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, the pride of mankind will be brought low. Put no more trust in in mere humans, God says. Skip to chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. The Lord rises to argue the case. He's arguing a case to all of creation. He says, look, heavens and earth Look at my people. Let me argue. They've abandoned me. They've depended on other things. Let me bring this charge against the elders and leaders of this people. That's who God blames. He blames the leaders who should have known better. The kings and the priests and the ones who were the fathers leading the people astray. He points to them and he says, they have abandoned me because of you. There's no leadership. In the face of severe judgment, there will, however, be promise of hope Isaiah chapter 4 verses 2 through 4 Isaiah begins God speaks through Isaiah and says on a day to come on that day on that day that I'm promising the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of Israel survivors there will be some Who will remain after I have levied judgment on my people, Judah? Some will remain, but then on that day, on that future day, there will be a branch that remains and it will grow up. Most of the people who remained were the poor. That's what happens. Those who are in leadership get wealth, they get prosperity, they get comfort, and who is left behind? The ones who have no power for themselves. And they're the ones that trust the Lord the most. When we are sick, when we are uh, at the end of our rope, when the bank account is low, what do we tend to do? We tend to turn to the Lord for help. When we are prosperous, when things are fine, when health is good, we are like, ah, the Lord's kind of, I I might need him. It's the human condition. But what God says is I'm gonna expel all of the ones who are rich and wealthy and thought they knew it. I'm gonna get them out, but there's gonna be a remnant who still call my name who still trust in me, who still look to me as their holy one, and they're, the, they're going to be the ones, and they're the ones that are going to see the faithfulness of the holy one of Israel. Humanity, verse five, chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, humanity is going to be brought low, but what? The Lord of armies will be exalted. He's going to bring justice to the land, and then he's going to bring his holiness, and he's going to bring his righteousness. He's going to hit the reset button. God warns nations, cultures, in the world through Isaiah. He says, listen, nations surrounding Israel, you're no different. I'm going to bring my judgment on you as well. But in Isaiah chapter 66, it says that everyone, all of creation, will flock to Zion. Zion equals Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Isaiah equals the people of God. Zion, Jerusalem, people of God. They will flock to that. They will flock to the people of God. They will flock to The summation of the holiness and righteousness of the people of God, which is all of Israel in one person. My son, whom I have called out of Egypt, I have lifted him high, the Messiah, the King, the servant, the conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to speak to his people directly. One last time, John chapter 12, he came speaking truth, and they did not see him or hear him. And in seeing him and in hearing him, they only became hardened more in their hearts, saying that you are not our king. And then God says, and he warns in chapter 5, verse 20, woe. It's the absolute opposite of blessedness. That word woe there. Remember our uh, study in the Psalms? Remember Psalm number 1? How does it open? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked or stands in the seat of scoffers or sits in the seat of counsel but his delight will be on the law of the Lord the opposite of a blessed life is this word woe it is a depth of, of sorrow and misery woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness this is the state of Israel this is the state of Judah this is the state of every single era in history where humanity says you know what Good is evil and evil is good. Where do we see that in our culture today? Where we say that the things that God has said is good, the culture says, the world says, no, that's not good. That's not the best plan. We do what is in our hearts. We do what we are led to do. We want to be free and independent. We want to be able to do that which we desire to do. There are no chains on me. I do not want to submit myself to the law of God or God himself. And we see that there is this flipping of what is morally good. It is morally good to tolerate. We allow things to happen that are abhorrent to God. That which is called evil is called good, and that which is good is called evil. The Israelites, those living in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day in 740 B.C., is they are no different. And they they were in no more danger than we are today, taking our eyes off of the Holy One of Israel, which brings us to Isaiah 6. Summarizing chapters 1 through 5 is the charge against a people who had forgotten the Holy One of Israel And here it is that God brings Isaiah before him and says, Isaiah, here I am, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 6, verse 4, it says that when the seraphim spoke, everything shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah looks and says, woe is me. There's that word again, woe is me. I am ruined. I am absolutely silenced before God because i am a man of unclean lips isaiah was a good dude isaiah was learned he loved the lord he had not forgotten the holy one of israel but if isaiah wealthy learned lover of god stands before god and says himself i am absolutely ruined because i'm a man of unclean lips he identifies with the people that he is from that they are a people of unclean lips Why? Because he has seen the holiness of the king in which there is no spot or blemish. He is the almighty, the powerful, the one to whom all will answer. And Isaiah says, I'm ruined. And this is where the good news comes in. The king on his throne sends the and That's what they are. They are messengers, and they take a coal. It is a burning lump of wood on fire. It is from the altar of sacrifice. That altar that is mentioned is the altar of sacrifice in which the cows and bulls that God has said, stop bringing me these sacrifices. They are nothing to me. They take a coal from that altar that is eternally burning in Israel. It should be in the temple where they lay meat on it, and then the fragrance of the smoke and the the atonement for sin through those sacrifices raises up to God and he smells the atoning smoke. This seraphim takes a coal and he takes it to Isaiah and he, he doesn't take the fire because it, it has any purifying. What it does is it, it is a, a, a matching of what Isaiah has confessed as sin. I have, I have sinned. I am part of these people. I am separate from you. You are holy. There's nothing I can do to bridge this gap. God says, that is correct, and what you've said is correct. And so the fire of the atoning sacrifices atones for your sin, Isaiah. I've seen the holiness of God. He says to him, God says to Isaiah in verse 7, your iniquity is removed. Notice who does not remove it. Isaiah does nothing to have it removed. Isaiah says nothing to convince that it should be removed. Who is the initiator here? It is God, the Holy One of Israel, who tells his messenger to take an atoning coal and say, it's removed. Because, Isaiah, you cannot remove it yourself. You are stuck. You're stuck. What do we do when we are stuck, when we are associated with Filth and sin and brokenness, and there's nothing we can do. We could go weeks on end trying our best to make ourselves better, to make ourselves right, but we feel stuck. Many of you feel stuck. You've been doing the same thing over and over and over again to feel the pleasure of God, to assuage for the sin that you know that you're secretly or even publicly doing. And yet God says there is nothing you can do to rescue yourself. You cannot pull yourself up out of the pit. So what does God tell Isaiah? Your iniquity is atoned for. And out of that, the good news of his iniquity begins to set in, it being removed. And, and then God says, who, who, hey, who are we going to send? Who, who could we send? Who could we send to tell the people of God that the Holy One of Israel is still on the throne and that sin and iniquity can be atoned for? I don't know. who who could go for us? And Isaiah, out of the love and the graciousness that has been shown to him, he says, I'll go. Send me. He doesn't even know what he's being sent for yet. He just says, this is what God revealed to me. And Isaiah, before he even knows what he's going to do, God says, go. Speak the truth to these people. Prophesy to them. Speak for me. Be my mouthpiece. Be the one who says that, You must be judged, but also Israel, the Holy One, will atone for your sins. Share with them the message of the suffering servant who will come and lay his life down for my people. Tell them of the king who is high and exalted on the throne. Tell them of the one who will conquer. Not just the land around you, but the entire universe will be made new. He's going to put it all right. That one is coming. Prophesy about that. And Isaiah says, let's go. Let's do this. Even to his death, he's the one who is sawn in two. If you look in Hebrews, it says, some in faith came, Jewish tradition has Isaiah being sawn in half by Manasseh, the king. Manasseh had enough of the truth, so he sawed him in half. So when Isaiah says, send me, he's saying, send me to my death, whatever you want. We, church, are called to go and to proclaim that the Holy One of Israel in the face of Jesus Christ, still reigns. And this God has never gone away. The stump, the holy seed that is in the stump, Isaiah says, that one, that one is coming. And when Jesus begins to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is here, quoting Isaiah more than any other prophet, Jesus says, Isaiah was speaking of me. And so, when we study Isaiah, what do we want to study? Why do we want to study? Well, one, we want to see the Holy One of Israel as the one who, above all other things, is the one that we cherish and love the most. We both fear Him and love Him. And it is in the face of Jesus Christ that the Holy One of Israel manifests Himself. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He came and dwelt among us. The Holy God of Israel, condescends in the form of a man. And in a man, he reveals his goodness and his grace and his power and his justice and his mercy and his righteousness through the man, Jesus Christ. We would do well to love him and to look at him and to worship him and to honor him. We are not in any less danger of mission drip, just as much as the people of Israel will. Isaiah was sent to proclaim And as a representative of what the people of God were, we are also called to do that which God has called us to be representatives of God in this world, of Christ in this world. We need to speak and live the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And for those of you even here today, the voice of God is still speaking. If you're here And you're hearing my voice. That's how God works. He speaks through His Word. He's spoken finally. The final prophet is Jesus Christ. There is no other prophet. And His Word has been spoken, and it has been closed, and it is continuing to be proclaimed. And if you continue to resist that Word, if you cannot hear it, if you refuse to see it, then the judgment of God will be upon you. And Jesus continually proclaims. Until He returns, that proclamation of grace and mercy will be proclaimed. Hear him, see him, the Holy One of Israel through Christ is begging you, calling you, be reconciled back to God. Isaiah chapter six, one through five, six. That's our study. That's what we're gonna look at. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's chvrchns You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.